Episode 35 of the Rain Race Podcast here. Today we're going to be recapping the Rolex 24 at Daytona and going over some of the IndyCar Silly Season news. If you want to catch us for future live episodes, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash c slash gtrain to join in in the live discussion. Until the next episode, enjoy. Welcome to episode 35 of the Rain Race Podcast, the Nor'easter edition here, uh, because where I am, uh, northeast part of the United States, we are in the middle of a huge snowstorm, but the show doesn't stop, and uh, if it does, it's because my power went out. Anyways, I'm not here alone, of course. I'm joined alongside my good friend, Kyle Cuthbertson. What's up, guys? Fresh from Florida. Yeah. Right yeah, into fresh. The, right it's into cold the, here. I don't yes. like it. It's snowing, just like you. I am in probably three or th- like two feet of snow. That's over-exaggerating. But it's a lot of snow, and it sucks. Yeah, anyways, we're going to be doing a uh, Rolex 24 recap today. Kyle was actually there. I wasn't. Uh, but still watched a decent amount of the race. Probably less than I wanted to, because... Yeah, me too. It's pretty uh, low on energy. <laughs> I noticed that you actually went to the hotel, which was a little bit different from last year. But Yeah, actually got a good night's sleep. It was actually the first time. I kind of enjoyed it a little bit because it was actually the first time I actually was like awake at, and like coherent at the end of a Rolex. Usually I'm like just kind of like a zombie. Just like, oh, yeah, there's the finish. But uh, this time I was pretty well rested and got to enjoy the uh, Sunday. Probably slept in a little longer. I'm a little depressed I missed the sunrise. That's about it. Yeah. You know what? Same though. I think it was actually interesting to have a one 24 hour race where I didn't feel dead at the mm-hmm. finish. Cause I was kind of taking short naps. I say short naps, but one of them was like four and a half hours long. So that's not, I mean, call it short if you want anyway. Uh, so I guess we'll start going over the, uh, the results right now, obviously in DPI, the, uh, number 10 Wayne Taylor racing Konica Minolta Acura. How about that? Um, I didn't predict that going into the race. In fact, I actually owe one of our friends uh, $10 now because I said if anybody apart from a Cadillac wins, I would give him $10. And, of course, that happened. So, yeah, uh, number 10, Wayne Taylor Racing Cadillac on top, uh, followed by the 48 Ally Cadillac slash Action Express um, Cadillac which was only 4.7 seconds behind at the finish in the hands of Kamui Kobayashi. And then Oliver Jar... Actually, no, Harry Tinknell was in the car at the finish in the uh, Mazda DPI, which I want to go over that a little bit later on. Uh, but that was the top three in DPI. Kyle, a little bit of a surprise on your end as well, or did you actually think that Acura was going to be there from the start? Uh, that It was actually, I mean, obviously a major surprise, like it was... I, th- I think everybody was surprised by it, honestly. Uh, when I went to bed, uh, that surely wasn't the case. I woke up, uh, and David and Steve, uh, my buddies I was staying with, obviously everyone knows David, um, but uh, I just woke up and I looked at them, like, who's leading? They said, uh, Wayne Taylor, P1, Mike Shank, P2. And it's just like, wait a minute, What? You just kind of do a double take of that. It's like, is it legit? Is it pit stops? It turned out to be legit. So, uh, yeah, pretty pretty crazy how that all came down in the end. I know you sent me a message during the race. You were saying that it kind of seemed like Acura and Mazda came alive during the uh, during the daytime hours, which is oh yeah interesting because 
it's usually the other way around where Cadillac will be. I mean, I don't want to say they're nowhere because certainly there have been years, 2017 and 2018, where they were really strong um, right from the start. But like 2019, when Mazda pulled out that pretty big lead, and 2020, Mazda was doing really well on day one. And then day two is when Cadillac just sort of stormed to the front. Um, I guess I'll jump into my theory with what Mazda was doing. Um, and Acura may be in the same boat because what I noticed about Daytona is, and the, the big grand picture I have here is I saw a lot of people comparing the finish of that race to like the finish of Le Mans. And they'll say like, oh, like Daytona is just a much better endurance race than Le Mans. Like if we're going to get finishes like that all the time. And my argument with that is that, well, yes, Daytona is consistently chucking out uh, more exciting finishes in the top class than I think the 24 hours of Le Mans has in the past maybe 10 years. Um, the thing that I've noticed with Daytona, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well, is that Daytona, the Daytona 24 hours is not as pure, I want to say, of an endurance race, at least of a 24-hour race, when compared to, like, Le Mans or the Nürburgring 24. I think the Spa 24, you could throw in the same boat as Daytona, where, and the reason I say this is because Daytona, the first 21 to 22 hours, don't really matter. And I know that that's kind of a controversial statement, but I've come to the idea that if you can keep the car clean for the first 20 one twenty-two hours and just not really throw it in a wall or have any major mechanical problems and you can find yourself on the lead lap that's all you really need to be in front at the finish whereas like Le Mans they have the split safety cars with three of them so if you fall like three quarters of a lap behind yeah you're not going to be able to get back to the front unless you genuinely have pace or everybody else has problems um so what I noticed with Daytona this year is that Maybe, and I don't have anything to back this up, but what could have happened in my eyes is Mazda were sort of treating the first 21 hours as, all right, let's keep the car out of out of trouble. And more importantly, let's keep you know our reliability in check. That's been a big question for Mazda uh, throughout the years. I feel like in 2020, um, although the 77 car didn't have any major mechanical issues, I think that they were sort of pushing the car maybe... 90% at the finish just to make sure that because I I want to say that there were some reliability concerns at the finish with the 77 um, in 2020 and my guess is that what Mazda was doing this year and I don't know how they would have fallen three laps behind from this I don't think that that was in their plan but what they could have been doing is they were sort of just pushing 85-90% for the first 18 something hours and then they were like, all right, well, now we're in it because we have these, we've had these few yellow flags. Now we're back in the race. And now we have a car that's not as beaten as it would have been if we were pushing 100% from the start. Um, and the only reason I say that they might have been considering that is because if you looked at the 2020 finish with Wayne Taylor Racing, who obviously won that year, they had, I don't, I don't remember exactly how long the stop and hold was, but they had a stop and hold penalty for driving through. Ryan Briscoe drove through the uh the pit exit light when it was red it turned red at like the last second and uh they came back from that stop and hold penalty within they they went over a lap down it was maybe just one lap down i think it was just one lap down but they came back from that within 
an hour, I want to say. And then they won. So I think that that was kind of a wake-up call to some of these manufacturers, and I wonder if anybody else was trying the same thing. But I don't really want to say the first, like, 22 hours don't matter at all. But it certainly looks like manufacturers might have been like, well, why are we going to push 100% from the start if we don't have to? Well, it makes sense, because like, I mean, with Daytona, realistically, if you just keep the car clean and make it to, you know, if you make it 23 hours, and in that final hour, if you can be on the lead lap, and you catch a yellow, you're right back into it. That's exactly what happened to Mazda. I mean, it's it's different from every endurance 24-hour race that I can think of. Where really you make it to the final hour and you're on the lead lap, catch a yellow, bada bing, bada boom. Because then you do all the, because it's not like, because with them, so they get all the uh, class wave arounds and separation, so that you're you're right there in your class, and it's pretty much like a, a total restart and it's just a one hour sprint to the finish. So yeah, I mean it makes sense to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the impression that I was under. Now, I also saw another thing that um, Mazda had a... Apparently, they had a rear wing issue at the end of the race um, Mm -hmm. within, like, the final hour. And that's what caused them eventually, or ultimately, a shot at the win. Uh, I believe that's what Harry Tinknell said. They believe it was... uh, I don't remember what part of the wing it was. I'd have to look it up again. But some part of the rear wing failed... I read that. Um, I saw the article on motorsport.com. Some part of the rear wing failed within the final hour. And I really saw that they had a huge head of steam. And then they sort of trailed off um, towards the finish. So you got to wonder if they could have. I mean, Harry said that he believes they could have won that race if it wasn't for that wing issue. And I did notice that they were really (laughs) up there. And in fact, they passed the 10 car at one point. Um, and they were side by side with, I think like the second, to last restart. But then after that, it was all kind of just downhill. And he said the car was really starting to lose it in most of the turns. So just something to note with them. Uh, anyways, we'll move on to LMP2, the Aero Motorsports Orica one, uh, Paul Lupchatan, Ryan DL, Dwight Merriman, and Kyle Tilly, uh, followed by the Tower Motorsports Orica and the Dragon Speed Orica. Um, LMP2 was weird. It was really weird. Yeah. Did you know, Would you like to explain just... why? Because I, um, I don't know where you're going. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think the attrition in LMP2 was really it, and it was hard to follow what was happening. Obviously, we had the uh, the yellow for the, the Yumbo car, the... Uh, the Orlin, the high-class racing car with Robert Gubitza had a gearbox failure, and they only made it 56 laps. Uh, Dragon Speed, I believe, brought out one of the early yellows, the uh, the 81 car. They only made it 53 laps. So there's three of them right off the bat. Um, and the one of our one of like my favorites going into the race was the Delara, the Settlar, right. yeah. or the Chetelar car. I don't know what people call it. It's whatever the correct way to say it is, but they were one of my like one of my favorites, and I, I can't like. I don't really know what happened to them. They just weren't, and to be honest, they weren't really that competitive like for the lead the entire race. 
and then and then the uh the next favorite the car who is the easy like top of the field favorite uh the uh trying to try to think of the team the, the PR1 Mathiason car they like early in the race they went like like 10 laps down and they finished you know 41st overall so just for them I mean that's just ben, the you know Ben Keating was killing it like they were still the whole race putting in fastest times of the race but it's like just so Lapierre had the fastest lap of the race in LMP2 but they just ran into trouble and to everyone's surprise the uh the Rick Ware racing uh car finished fourth in class I mean it was just such a derby race and it was kind of like if you remember in 2020 in LMP2 where there was way less cars than there were uh this year the mm-hmm. entire thing was just uh, the the fifty two Ben Keating car versus Dragon Speed. You know they were trading for the lead, pretty much every pit stop and driver change. Because remember, the uh, the Am drive Keating would be in the car, the fifty two would go to the lead, Hanley would get in the car, and then one of the gentleman drivers in the fifty two would get in, and then Dragon Speed would go to the lead. And then at the end of the day, it ended up being the eight car that won. Which is how did that happen? So it was kind of like that. But when you have this many cars in LMP2, it's just you look at the results, you think about how the the leaderboard was throughout the entirety of the race. You just think about it. It's just like, how did any of that happen? It was just so weird. Well, you mentioned the 47, the Talara. Did you say that they weren't up front most of the time? really that I remember. Well, I mean, they were up front. They definitely had the pace. I know that they ended up dropping out of contention because of a gearbox issue, uh, which they had to repair at some point overnight. I was sleeping, sleeping mm-hmm. at that time. Um, this is what, this is what I get for actually sleeping during the race for once in my life. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they were competitive. They were leading for a decent amount of the first day. I'd say, um, I mean, I don't have how many laps they led, uh, you know, right in front of me, but they certainly did have pace. It's just, they had, they ended up dropping out due to uh, reliability issues. No, um, another thing about LMP2 is LMP2. I noticed I was talking, you know, the whole Lamar versus Daytona argument earlier. Which, to be fair, I don't think that that's a fair argument in the first place. But, anyways, if we're gonna go on it, um, LMP2 at Lamar always seems to be like a way more. I want to describe it as like a way more mature class, where it's nearly like a pro class i mean it, lmp2 at lamar is pretty much the equivalent of like dpi in in imsa um just because of how difficult it has been to get into an lmp1 seat in the past couple of years and in terms of like just driver talent and competition um lmp2 has seemed to be like almost a pro class an entirely pro class at lamar at least for the front runners um Whereas in IMSA, ever since really the introduction of the new LMP2 cars back in 2017, it's kind of felt like, especially with the uh, with the class split. Well, actually, no, not really, because because back when you had like United Autosports and teams like that, uh, they did have all pro driver lineups in LMP2. So I'll say after they split the two classes, DPI mm-hmm. and LMP2, yeah, that's really when it really. Split. 
that's when it really became sort of, you know, a, a pro-am focused class, certainly not on the same level as we see at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, and that was my whole argument from last episode as to why we have two pro-am prototype classes in EMSA mm -hmm. right now. Um, I guess we'll use that as a segue. Because, by the way, it has been brought to my attention uh, on our break that Kyle and I had been saying leeway for like three years. <laughs> and that, well, we were not using that in the correct context. And in fact, we should have been saying segue. So we're apologize up. for that. We're yes. growing up. Apologize about that. Didn't learn that one in my uh, lackluster education. Uh, <laughs> anyways, LMP3 um, was fun fact. Not as about bad as we thought it was going to be. Yeah. yeah, it actually wasn't. And I will admit that I was wrong on that case. I thought that LMP3 was going to be worse than it actually was. They didn't. Um, did they even bring out a yellow? Did they? I believe they brought out a couple At of yellows, one. but was, but I think there was one. There's one I, I remember. I mean, I mean, they the had their fair share of off-track excursions, but I thought that they were going to be getting in the way more of the GTLM cars, um, but wasn't quite so, thankfully. Uh, anyway, LMP3, the Riley Motorsports number 74 uh, entry won the race. Scott Andrews, Oliver Askew, Spencer Piggott, and Gar Robinson. Um, or Robinson had to say that. Yeah. I mean, what what can you say? That's pretty much, you know, you have two former IndyCar drivers in that car. Um, this is where I had the whole argument of like, what are you going to classify as a, as a pro-am car? Um, I also want to point out that I realized over the weekend that, did you know that Oliver Askew, so it's a pro-am class, but Oliver Askew was considered a silver Yes, because so, FIA ratings are not very consistent yeah. across the board. <laughs> so, I mean, so you think about that, and if Oliver Askew doesn't get all, like, you got to remember, he's not full time in IMSA. That's a sneaky silver. If someone doesn't like scoop him up right now, then that's a mistake. That's someone you want in your car be in a pro am class because he's a silver. By the way, he's one for one in IMSA now. That was his first ever M's to start. Not bad. Not a bad record. Uh, Sean Creech Motorsport, number 33, finished... <clears throat> I don't know. I'm like losing my voice here. Almost. Uh, finished second. Shaw Barbosa, Wayne Boyd, Yan Clare, and Lance Wilsey uh, in that car. And in third place in LMP3 was the Mjolnir, Mjolnir Motorsport uh, Duquesne of Lawrence Haar. Uh, Kenton Cook, Moritz Kranz, and Stephen McAleer. Um, so yeah, I already kind of said what I needed to say about LMP3. I thought that it was going to be a bigger problem than it ended up being, and I think that now that we got Daytona out of the way, uh, I think that if any race was going to be a huge issue for the LMP3 class getting in the way of the others, it was going to be Daytona. So mm -hmm. hopefully uh, for the rest of the races, it's... Uh, it's kind of just uphill from here. Um, interestingly enough, the LMP3 winner actually finished behind the GTLM winner, which was the number three Corvette, Nikki Katzberg, Antonio Garcia, Jordan Taylor, and Tommy Milner. Um, actually, a Corvette won too because the number four Corvette finished second. And in third place was the 24 BMW, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, uh, M8. Um 
Now, I don't really have a ton to say about GTLM. GTLM was kind of just a class that seems like they were... The weird thing I have about GTLM is that everybody minus the Porsche, which actually now I have something to talk about, um, had had a shot at winning that race. I guess we'll take the 25 BMW yeah, out as well if we're going to get BMW. technical, yeah. But but the 24 BMW, the Ferrari, and both Corvettes really were in contention to win that race all the way up until the end, I'd say. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing I noticed is that every time anybody would get the lead that wasn't Corvette, whether it was that BMW or the Ferrari, they would not hold on to it for very long. Um, like, I really thought BMW was going to steal it at the end when they got the lead Great. after, like, one of the final restarts. Um, didn't happen. So, a little bit interesting to see that uh, on that front. But I guess a well-deserved victory from Corvette. They've been waiting on that one since their last one, too, in 2016. Um... And I guess we'll talk about the start in GTLM. Um, the number 25 BMW, if you haven't seen it yet, which you probably have at this point, uh, ran straight into the back of the WeatherTech Racing Porsche. And it was actually a miracle. Kyle, I don't know where you were at the start of the race. I don't know if you were in the grandstands, but... I was in, I was in turns three and four, which is actually a great place to watch the race, believe it or not. Um, but I was just mind blown that that wasn't a bigger incident yeah. than it was going to be because that could have taken out the entire gtd field like yeah entirely. i mean it could have taken out at least a handful of cars at the start um and the interesting thing that i noticed is that the WeatherTech racing porsche actually didn't hold on to the brakes immediately when they got turned um I'm trying to remember who's in the car at the time it was uh it was estray it was i made it a point that cooper mcneil was not in the car so all those Facebook groups that are IMSA-related, no, you cannot make Cooper McNeil memes because it was Kevin Estre in the car, and don't be making fun of our boy who's a silver in GTLM, okay? Well, it wasn't even their fault anyways, so... Well, true. But um. But you know how it is. Even if it's not their fault, there's still going to be memes. Oh, yeah. Um. But yeah, I was just mind-blown that that wasn't a problem because... I thought, oh, maybe he's just going to hold the brakes and sort of just stay on the racing line and everybody's going to split around. But then he ended up rolling backwards, and I was like, oh, there's some GTD cars trying to pass on the low line there. I thought that that was going to be a huge incident, but actually it seemed pretty clean across the board apart from the uh, apart from the Porsche itself. I thought um, one of the Ferraris, like, for sure clipped him when I first saw it. But really there was, like, the, the, only, the only damage from that really was the... Uh, the Porsche losing the entire bumper and the entire floor, which was crazy, because it's all I saw was the Porsche go by and the the the, the rear diffuser was hanging halfway out the back of the car. It was insane. And you know, I was surprised by how much damage they actually had. Oh yeah. Because to me, it didn't look like they were gonna really have that much. Because they didn't, they weren't really hit. They might have been hit very lightly by another car but it certainly wasn't like a slam into the side or something that it could have been i thought that they were going to just get away with maybe a bumper change but they had some floor damage from that they said cooper mcneil said that the car was down on pace for the rest of the race after that so that was a little bit surprising to me um and finally gtd uh the winward winward racing mercedes first time they actually entered the rolex 24 by the way uh of indy donchi philip ellis 
Mauro Engel and Russell Ward uh, won the race over the Sun Energy One Racing Mercedes. Uh, and third place was the Paul Miller Lamborghini. Uh, GTD, only thing I really have to say about that class, apart from the two leaders taking them uh, taking each other out with like three hours to go maybe, <laughs> um, just shows why I think GTD in the pro class is going to be a good, or GT3 in the pro class is going to be a good idea for next season. Uh, just nonstop battles throughout the entire race, and it was really anybody's game up until the very end. Um, and I guess we'll just go from there onto everything that we said in the last episode, because everything that we brought up in the last episode with what's the future of a top class in GT racing for IMSA kind of was answered two days after, after we brought that up in the episode. Yeah. Um, but I guess I'll just <clears throat> clarify it again here a little bit. The uh, GTLM class will be no more in 2022, uh, and it will be replaced by GTD Pro, which is a fully pro GTD or GT3 uh, class in IMSA. So just picture GTD, the class we already have. Uh, those cars, which will be eligible for an all-pro factory lineup. And to me, I think that is a great idea. As much as I am disappointed by the fact that we're going to be losing... I mean, I'm not going to say we're going to lose cars like the C8R because obviously I think Corvette plans on making a GT3 car. Um, but, you know, for those people who really wanted to see the best of what a GT car could be, at least in the United States, that's going to be uh, unfortunately gone. Um, GT3 cars are a little bit slower, but I think that in the interest of car count, which is what sports car racing really needs to be looking at at this point in time, I think, uh, it's going to be a good move for them. I just don't like the separation of the AM and Pro. That's really my biggest gripe with the way WEC does it, where it's GTE Pro and GTE AM. But really, you know, I, I do understand the need for the gentleman driver and the AM class to get their trophy. But at the same time, I still like... They're still going to have normal GTD where you're not allowed to run a factory program. But Well, well hang on, because like, you say they're not allowed to run a factory program, but the but days of that ship already. have already sailed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, Mike Sh- or Meyer Shank, exactly, when they were in that class, they were essentially factory. Lexus is essentially yeah. factory. Yeah, that's my point. I, I think that's stupid. I... I would rather them just have one class. I mean, I know, obviously, I just said why they don't do that. Pretty much it's so that the gentleman drivers get a trophy. But um, I, I think it's dumb. You know, we, we label these GTD teams as not being factory when they totally are. And it's so easy to see right through. And I, I, I just... Why split... I mean, we're practically going to have two classes of the same cars. They're talking about slowing down normal GTD. or GT, It's going to be GTEM. We all know that's what it's going to be called. They're talking about slowing down that class. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't agree with it. I, I think it'd just be way easier if you're going to use the same regulation, basically, just why don't we just have one class? And then, even if you do split the classes up for trophies, 
why not just have one class be pro just do it off driver ratings and let the two classes race each other for overall i mean what's the problem with that i, I don't understand why they have to split it it's stupid uh yeah basically that's it well it's not confirmed yet that they're really going to split it but <clears throat> i think generally speaking it kind of factors out where the um the pro entries usually cycle to the front anyways um I mean, you notice this at, like, the Bathurst 12-hour, um, where, obviously, if you spend more money on a program and you have all pro drivers and you're racing up against a pro-am lineup with who has a little bit less money, who do you think is going to come out on front? Um, but we'll have to see. I mean, IMSA hasn't really said anything apart from the fact that they're replacing GTLM with GTD Pro, and that's all we know so far. We don't know anything about, like, if they plan on giving the GTD Pro cars more power or anything along those lines. So we'll have to wait and see what the future holds. Um, I guess that that's just, <laughs> that's all I have to say on that, on the uh, note of the GTD Pro class for now. Um, I'm trying to remember if I had anything else to go over from the, uh, from the race itself. And you can jump in here if you wanted to. And I also just use this opportunity to say that if you are watching right now, uh, because this is a live podcast, we encourage interaction. So if you want to ask us some questions, uh, anything that we thought about the race or uh, anything that we'd be able to talk about otherwise that's somewhat related, we'll try to get to those questions. So, uh, But Kyle, did you have any closing thoughts with the Rolex 24 before we move it on? Well, one thing I think we definitely missed talking about when we went over DPI, how about that Ganassi Cadillac? Oh, yeah. How about yes, that? Yes, I did forget talking. The heartbreak. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's. They had two issues with uh, with a puncture. The in first the final one I thought was a blowout initially at the track. Initially, I thought it was a complete engine kaboom, but it wasn't. And so they they came back from that. And the one thing I want to point out is I have up on my screen. I'm gonna have to visualize this for you. But I have the average uh, DPI lap times of each driver and personal bests of each driver. And if you look at this entire list of all the drivers in DPI, you have the number 01 Cadillac, second, third, and fifth. Now, all the rest of the teams, they're kind of jumbled all over the board. But you want to talk about three drivers consistent with each other. The number zero one car, Scott Dixon, had the best average. Ranger Van de Zanda had the fastest lap overall in DPI in the race by like three tenths. It was it was insane how quick that car was. I said during the race, at the in the closing moments, because I mean, I was asleep. I'm not sure how the ten got got to where it did, but I think the ten and the fifty five were the most consistent. That's why they were up there. I think they were just having pro the cleanest race and just. You know, they had the best drivers in the car at that time in Philippe Albuquerque because um, Albuquerque was basically carrying the 10. He was the fastest guy in the 10 car. He wasn't really carrying, but he was definitely the fastest. And Kamoi Kobayashi, every time he got in the car, because Kamoi Kobayashi did end up being the overall fastest average driver in the race. I believe third fastest when you go to personal best lap time. But he ran the fastest average consistent race but the 48 probably with Kamui had the best driver 
fastest driver. And then the O one was just the fastest car on the track, but they just had, they just kept running into issues. And at the end of the race, it was pretty, I think it's pretty apparent, apparent without that blow up, they would have easily won the race easily. I think. I mean, we were certainly robbed of a really close battle at the finish because they went to the pits with what seven or eight minutes to go. Um, but I will say it's extremely impressive for Chip Ganassi Racing. Of course, we hold them to high standards because they're Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, but for them to be up battling at the finish with a card that they took delivery of a couple of, like you know, a month or so ago, and a team that they assembled, I think, like three weeks ago. Um, was pretty impressive to say the least. Certainly for a, a team that has no experience running the Cadillac or even running any LMP-based car, because the last time they were in prototypes was just the uh, Daytona prototypes, and those were nothing alike the uh, the DPI cars except for a name. So certainly, I think the future looks bright for them. I wouldn't hesitate at all to consider them a championship contender already, uh, because if Daytona is lead into anything. I think that their future is pretty strong for the season. And then one, one like small surprise, I, I guess a lot of people could have seen this coming, but I think the pace of Chase Elliott during the race was pretty disappointing. That was kind of the meme throughout the NBC broadcast I heard was them just nonstop talking about Chase Elliott. I don't know how much they talked about Jim Jam, but Jimmy did all right. We're not going to give Jimmy a hard time, but I really thought, because I think Chase Elliott is a, a driver in NASCAR who has won, gosh, he's won, I don't know how many road course races at this point. The majority. First, it's fair to say yeah, the majority, though. From 2018 to now, he's probably four or five, maybe. It's It's just, so he's obviously the best road course racer in NASCAR right now. And Jimmy Johnson, throughout his entire NASCAR career only had one win on a road course. And so, you know, going in and, th- and throughout practice even, like we just, wa- just visually seeing Jimmy and Chase in the car during practice, I would have never predicted that Chase Elliott would have been the slower out of the two NASCAR drivers. Or I guess Jimmy's not really a NASCAR driver now, but I thought that was very interesting because if you, again, going back to my, not my list, but the list of average lap times, Chase Elliott, slowest driver in D- slowest driver in DPI, and it's not even he's. Let me say this: he's four tenths behind this, the next guy ahead of him, and he's a second and a half off Kobayashi at this at the very bottom. And I th- he did all right, I would say. I I think I think he had trouble in traffic. He didn't wreck it. He didn't get involved in a big accident. Apparently he did. Apparently he did damage to the floor of the car. But yeah, I was pretty surprised by that. I don't know about you, but I was pretty. I was a little surprised that he did that bad. I would say. Well, I mean, he certainly could have done worse. I think it's easy. Mm, sure. it's, it's it's fair to say that uh, he didn't bend in the pit wall like Jeff Gordon in 07. Yeah, and Rekamasa. Um, <laughs> but I think. This is just going based off what I've noticed in terms of their attitudes going into the race. And this may just be because Jimmy has been way more open 
with everything that he's been trying lately, where like he's excited to try IndyCar, he was excited to try prototype racing. Um, to me, it seemed like Chase Elliott kind of hopped in and was like, "All right, I'm gonna like do what I can here." He might have been a little bit over his head. I think that maybe he had that confidence given his success in road courses in NASCAR. Um, I may be wrong. Maybe he he was you know, putting a lot of preparation and thought into the race beforehand. He just wasn't showing it publicly. But I think that there is a potential of that, whereas Jimmy Johnson is really sort of treating everything here as a huge step that he has to sort of work his way up to. And, um, you know, we saw Jimmy in the car at the Roar quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Whereas Chase Elliott, Chase, did he even, he didn't even run in the Roar, did he? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you know what I was thinking? I was not thinking. About, I was thinking about the preseason, like before the roar, that test. Yeah. No, um, he, yeah. Right. No. So, yeah, Chase didn't, didn't run that. on that test. Jimmy did. Um, so, you know, I think Jimmy was really preparing himself for the race a little bit more. Now, in terms of the commentary, they certainly were, at <laughs> least on NBC, hyping up Chase Elliott a lot more. And I think the easy way to point why they were doing that is because of his success in NASCAR road courses, which yeah. I don't, I don't really think is fair because, um, you know, number one, if you put him on the same level as you put like, cause they were hyping up more than they were hyping him up more than Kyle Bush last year or more than, and Kyle Bush NASCAR champion, um, Jimmy Johnson NASCAR champion. Now I know Jeff Gordon got a lot of, you know, praise, or a lot of hype when he did the the race in 2017. Um, but I even want to say Chase's hype was more than that. I think that the the problem was is that the NASCAR fans going into the race put a lot of expectation on him because of how well he does on the road courses. And uh, it just didn't end up... He didn't end up holding up to the hype, and that was the biggest problem. But... You know, you yeah. look at some of the other drivers like Kyle Busch or Jimmy Johnson, it's not easy to point at them and say these are road course guys. Whereas I think a lot of people looked at Chase Elliott as a road course guy. And yes, mm-hmm. he may be a NASCAR, but when you're trying to compare a, a stock car to to a uh, an LMP-based DPI car, there's just no correlation at all and uh, a completely different driving style. So I'd like to see him do it again. I thought that he brought a lot of value and certainly a lot of fans to the race. Uh, same with Jimmy Johnson as well. I'd love to see him come back and try to get a win. Uh, I think that's like the third, second place finish for Jimmy Johnson at the 24. Um, I think both of them can come back. And if both of them now know how difficult it really is to win a race like that, um, you know, either one of them could really put themselves in a winning position, but we'll see. I bought a hat while I was in Daytona that says Chase Elliott, 24 hours of Daytona. As if Chase was the only driver in the car, right? There's a T-shirt mm-hmm. that has the wheel and Cadillac on it that says Chase Elliott as if he's the only driver in the car. Um, what's cool about Jimmy and Chase doing it this year is they definitely... Chase for sure. I think Chase brought probably the most hype, honestly, of any driver I've seen in the world. I mean, he probably even more than when Jeff Gordon did it. Like, honestly. I think this is... that He was... And I didn't see it coming as much as it was, but I think he probably had the most hype around him. Like the the broadcast was giving him hype. They brought 
They literally brought the same, like the 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 merchant, the Chase Elliott merchandise hauler from NASCAR, the same one that they're going to bring all the NASCAR races. They brought that to Daytona. There were people everywhere wearing Chase Elliott merchandise. I guarantee. I didn't. That's another thing. I didn't expect the Chase Elliott attendance bump to be that big, which it was. Oh my gosh, it was. And they're saying that Chase and Jimmy kind of put themselves in the deep end kind of on purpose this year, and they knew that they were, and they're going to come back next year, uh, which is really good, because I think this is actually a really good thing for IMSA, because I think a lot of people honestly tuned into IMSA for the first time uh, this weekend to see how Jimmy and Chase Lee did, because like you said, Kyle Busch did the race last year, but I, I think there's a different type of draw when these drivers, these big-name drivers, do the race in the top class in DPI rather than when Kyle Busch did it in GTD. I think it's just a little bit more interesting when they do it in DPI, in the top class. But, yeah, I really hope they do it again because that was, yeah. When you, when you think about the the attendance bump, the the viewership, it was it was a huge, huge boost for IMSA. And, honestly, you, you, I love to see that. I agree with that. Now, I was just thinking while you were saying that, I wonder if there's going to be the possibility. Uh, now, they don't really fit in the pro class, but, you know, neither did, you know, I'd, I'd say neither did Chase Elliott in all honesty in DPI. I think he would have been better placed in like LMP2 like Austin Dillon was for this year. But I wonder if next year when we get GT3 cars in the pro class, for uh, for GT at least, if you're going to see some special one-off entries in that featuring some NASCAR drivers, because I think that that could be a little bit more appealing to them. Obviously GT3 is much closer to the cars that they usually run. It's not as intimidating, I guess, um, as stepping into a fully fledged prototype would be. Uh, we'll have to see, because I think that that could actually be something appealing to them. Uh, I know that that's, you know, Kyle Busch really fit in and he really, didn't seem out of place as much because of the fact that he was in a car. He was in a, a V8-powered front-engine Lexus, um, which, you know, while it is a GT3 car and he normally drives stock cars, the similarities between that and his daily driver are much closer than that of a DPI car and a stock car. Just something for, you know, some food for thought for next season. Anyway, shall we move it on to uh, some IndyCar stuff? We didn't do any IndyCar stuff yeah. last episode. I'm going to let you take... I think we did. I think we did, didn't we? We talked about... No, we talked about TV broadcasts. Oh, that's right. We Yes. But now we're going to talk about actual on-track activity. Um, unless you have absolutely nothing prepared, I'm going to let you take the reins on the, uh, on the testing from today. Well, so if you haven't heard, today was basically... Spring training for IndyCar. Uh, more than half the field, I believe, showed up. The only people who, the only teams that did not show up were Ganassi, Dale Coyne, and uh, Carlin. I believe those are the the, the teams that didn't show up. Uh, we have some unofficial uh, times today from testing. We have Pato Award, uh, Alexander Rossi, Joseph Newgarden, Colton Herta, and. Uh, we have Oliver Askew in the top five, which uh, Oliver Askew was testing the number 29 Andretti Autosport 
Honda because James Hinchcliffe uh, could not get to the United States from Canada in time to uh, test his car. So they put Oliver Askew in the car today, which I think was the big like story, the big kind of interest besides Scott McLaughlin, which I'll, we'll talk about him. But uh, I think he was the big interest today. Obviously doesn't have a full-time ride for this year. Uh, just kind of got chalked into a uh, Andretti car last second after winning the LMP3 class yesterday at the uh, Rolex. And he was fifth on the charts. Uh, right there behind uh, Colton Herta, two tenths off, unofficially, obviously. Uh, and he was actually ahead of Ryan Hunter Ray. And uh, according to our good pal David, who was actually at, at Sebring, he dropped me off at the uh, airport today in Orlando and then just uh, kept going south uh, to Sebring. They actually went to the test. Uh, he should have some stuff on YouTube on that. But, um, yeah, he and then actually qualify, um, qualified, uh, ran just quicker than Felix Rosenquist in his old number seven uh, Aaron McLaren SP uh, Chevrolet. Just barely quicker, but right there, just being chalked into an Andretti car last second. Um, I would definitely like to see Andretti or some team just give Oliver another chance. I don't think he really got a fair rookie season. Honestly, didn't get a lot of testing. And I think all the testing he did was uh, Sebring. And obviously, we all know what happened during 2020. And not having as much track time. I mean, IndyCar still had practices and qualifying. But he definitely did not have as much track time as he would have in a normal rookie season. So... The way he was, the, the hand he was dealt at the end of the season by McLaren, I think was a bit unfair. And he showed now that he has his potential. And uh, we know Marco's not going to be in that car and they're re reducing. So I would just love to see Oliver have something uh, to get something for this season. Quicker than a lot of really good guys today. Um, another interest uh, in the unofficial time state of me is Scott McLaughlin. Actually, so, on the charts, he was last out of everybody, but, um, so, Pato Award was fastest with a 51.7. Obviously, they run the C-Ring short course uh, to kind of simulate a street circuit. Uh, he ran a 51.7, and McLaughlin, last out of all the drivers, ran a 52.4. And there were only two drivers who dipped into the 51s, and that was Pato Award and Rossi. And then Newgarden ran a 52 flat. He was, excuse me, he was the fastest Penske. And then the next Penske, you have to go all the way down the list until you get to Will Power with a 52.3, which is only about a tenth quicker than McLaughlin. So McLaughlin already, you know, just just getting, obviously he tested a Coda last year, uh, ran the race at St. Petersburg, but already uh, in this test at Sebring is only a tenth off of Will Power. And uh, just the same uh, a tenth under Pagano. So he's right there. Ran just, literally a, a parent, uh, unofficially a one hundredth of a second behind Hunter Ray. So he's right there, you know, with these teams, with everybody else. And uh, that obviously gives a good sign 
as to what's to come. Obviously, McLaughlin just uh, announced a new partnership. He's going to be running the PPG car uh, for 10 races this year. So he debuted that livery today as well. Uh, so a lot of interesting things happening uh, in the IndyCar world uh, today at Sebring. I know we just talked about Chase Elliott and having to live up to the hype at the Rolex, and I just think Scott McLaughlin's kind of in the same boat. I mean, when's the last time, if ever, that a driver who had zero IndyCar experience for their first race got signed on to Team Penske? Um, if you know, maybe you can tell me, but I I certainly don't know. Um, and McLaughlin kind of is coming over from the Australian V8 supercars, which we also talked about being out of your comfort zone and that's about as far a difference as you can get as well um but you know i certainly think that he has a huge mountain to climb for this season every race is going to be a learning opportunity and it's going to be extremely hard i think for him to live up to some people's hype expectations because some people will see that penske name and they'll say oh this is a guy who's effectively in you know what elio castroneves's car was a few seasons ago um uh, well, I don't think it's fair to hold him to the same uh, expectation for the first season. We'll have to see how long it takes him to really get comfortable and start churning out the results that we're expecting from Penske drivers. Well, the thing about McLaughlin is, and you're right, I can't really think of one. There's probably a driver in the late 90s uh, that got thrown into a, maybe, um trying to think, uh, maybe... Wasn't it Memo Gidley? There was a driver in the late 90s got thrown into a Penske yeah, car. We need David for this. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> One of them. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, you got to cut that out of the... Um, but uh, he de- the one thing is he definitely has to perform eventually because you can't just... You can't just be in Team Penske and spend a couple seasons in not performing. If he wants to stay in IndyCar long term, obviously his first season's not going to be the prettiest, but he's definitely ha- he definitely has to there the pressure is real where he has to get up to speed and start you know clicking off te- top 10s and top 5s because Roger's shown how you know ruthless he is. I mean, Juan Pablo Montoya had you know two okay years at the end, and then he became a 500-only entry, and then he was uh, moved to IMSA. Again, and I guess Elio, the same, kind of the same, kind of just booted to IMSA kind of against their will. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it, it's interesting because he's just kind of thrown in the deep end, not a lot of experience in open-wheel cars, but yet you can't just go to Team Penske and not perform, right? So, yeah, it is... That it's it's definitely why it's one of the one of the biggest storylines heading into IndyCar this year. You know, I see some similarity now that I think about it to uh, Alexander Rossi when he had his debut season in 2016 with Andretti. Now, granted, their backgrounds are completely different. Um, Rossi was almost entirely open wheel based for his background. In fact, he had uh, some Formula One experience in 2015. So for him to jump into a top seat Andretti car at the time was, you know, it was a little bit different than, say, McLaughlin, where he's coming from cars that are nowhere near the same. 
Um, but you may remember Rossi was almost terrified of the oval races. Phoenix would have mm -hmm. been his first one in 2016. Um, and then he really had that sort of breakout at the Indy 500 where he pulled off a fuel-saving victory. And now he's one of the biggest threats at oval races, period. Um, I wonder if we're going to see sort of a mirroring situation with Scott. Uh, certainly, he's, he's probably not going to be as aggressive as some of his co-drivers uh, at the oval races from the start because he doesn't have that oval experience. But I wonder if there's going to be any similarity to what we saw with Rossi. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you talk about the ovals, that kind of gets my brain thinking is how is he, he's obviously already tested at Indianapolis. How is he going to adapt to say his first ever oval experience? I mean, Rossi had the short oval at Phoenix. McLaughlin's going to have to get thrown into a double header at Texas coming up in, uh, I believe that is in May. It's like first week in a no. It's April. It has to can't be May. I gotta look this up now. But um, he's gonna be thrown in the deep end at Texas for a doubleheader. Oh, that isn't May. That's sacrilegious. Anyway, he yeah. I is he gonna adapt like Rossi or is he gonna fall? It's that's man. <laughs> well, it's almost May, about but... confidence too, because like Rossi's was night and day. You know, you go from being terrified of oval racing, and maybe terrified isn't the right word, but at least, you know, certainly you're you're a little bit skeptical of it, of oval racing. Um, and then Phoenix, the, the race after Phoenix was Indianapolis, and well, the next oval race, I should say, was Indianapolis, right? Um, so, you know, that was sort of a, you know, he won Indianapolis. Certainly he had the whole month to get a little bit more comfortable, but... Uh, after that, it was pretty much just like, okay, this guy's good at ovals now. As I remember, he was pretty good at Pocono in 2016. Um, did he win? Po no, he did he? No, no, he didn't win Pocono no, he, in 2016. In no. What year? 2016. Oh, wait, did he win Pocono? No. Okay. That was the year he uh, flew over top of uh, Elio. You remember that? Right, right in the pits. Yes, yeah. I was actually in class for that race because that race was yeah. on a Monday or something like that. I thought, but... he, I thought he took out like Elio's head. That was terrifying. Anyways, and then you look at it and just whoa. So I am wrong. Maybe Pocono yeah. 2016 wasn't one of his strongest races, but it was strong until he drove over Elio. Yeah, um, he did well. But then you look at like his confidence at Gateway in 2019. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a night and day difference from where he was just four years look at ago. His, look at his confidence ago. at Indianapolis in 2019. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, pointing at Servia down the main stretch, you mm -hmm. know, making the, the passes that he did. It's just just a to total difference. It's The thing is, his 16 win at Indy, second oval. He, he was the fastest car on track, but he didn't really, he wanted off fuel and he didn't really do anything on track as far as something that made you say, oh, he's he's brave or he's confident. It wasn't until... I mean, the he did well in the 17-500, but I, I want to say it wasn't until 2017 Texas where he really showed that, that oomph. Well, not really, because he did 
I was I, I was thinking of something different. That was when he he got wrecked by I forgot he got wrecked by Kanan pretty early, I believe. Right? Right? Don't ask me. I was uh, like three wide with Dixon and Kanan or something. Kanan I was MIA like, from that race too. That was the uh, Tora twenty four at Lamar. I don't know, man. He started showing confidence around 2017. So it took him a year. Full circle. It took him a year and a half. And a half. Year and a half. So McLaughlin, Wiley, Australian, or New Zealand, or uh, how is he going to fare? I like his mentality, though. I think he has the right mentality for an upstart IndyCar driver. Um, because, you know, you've seen his potential. And the one thing I have noticed is that Scott seems like the type of driver who can hop into something. And, yeah, maybe it's going to take him a little bit of time to get used to. Just like it did with VA Supercars. You know, when he started in Supercars in the Super 2 Series, he wasn't particularly, you know, incredible. Um, and then once he really got the hang of it and got a good ride with uh, DGR Team Penske, he was unbeatable almost. I mean, almost Mercedes F1 levels of dominance. And uh, I'm curious to see if it's going to be the same story for IndyCar. Maybe it'll be, you know, one bad season. Um, Like you brought up earlier, the question is going to be how much time does he get before, you know, Roger says, all right, I think it's time that somebody else gets this seat because the top Penske seat is, you know, it's a highly acclaimed spot in the IndyCar series. Um and, you know, certainly for him, there's going to be a huge amount of pressure. But we'll have to see how he holds on. Uh, I mean, Penske's, Penske is, to go to McLaughlin, he's reverting back to running four cars. And Penske doesn't, like, just do that. He he was running three cars for a reason full-time. Right. If, so basically, if he wanted to run four, he'd run four, which is what happened. And... You know, just, he has to see something in McLaughlin for this to be happening, and I can't even imagine the type of pressure that McLaughlin's under. But what kind of is encouraging to me is he doesn't really show it, you know. And it's just we'll just have to wait and see. I'm pretty, I'm pretty thrilled and excited. Well, that's There's what I'm. That's what I meant when you said he, he doesn't really show any of that pressure getting to him. And, you know, he made a mistake at St. Petersburg, but he didn't really beat himself into the dirt about it. He really just, I think, took it as a learning opportunity. So if he can hold on to that mentality, and this is why I say I like Scott McLaughlin's mentality, if he can hold on to that and just remain confident and take each race at the beginning at least as a learning opportunity, I think he's certainly going to be in a winning position maybe next season. Maybe this season, you know, we'll have to see. Um, you know, take what you want off, off. You know, this is a basis, but he was pretty confident and strong in the uh, the i racing IndyCar series that happened mm-hmm. uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I mean, his times and testing are confident. Obviously, today and they were really com- They were really good at Coda, which is what really, you know, set everything off. Mm-hmm. The fastest 33 commented, I assume Kevin Magnuson needs to test an IndyCar. Um, now, I was, I have been kind of looking at that comment over the past few minutes and thinking, well, he's a full-time Ganassi DPI driver. 
who's an IndyCar, you know, who's a team that's an IndyCar, it's Chip Ganassi. Um, you know, it certainly wouldn't be the wildest thing, I think, for Chip Ganassi to give Kevin Magnuson a, uh, at least an IndyCar test, maybe, you know, put him in for a couple of races as a one-off. Um, you know, but you actually, you don't see Chip doing that that often anymore. Chip Ganassi used to be, what, like a four-car team? Um, mm -hmm. Now down to two. Well, now ten, three. But oh, technically, yes, yes. Ten, remember, we got to remember, though, what's kind of slipping across your brain is uh, it is technically a four-car team now because they're running the 48 full-time, but it's two drivers. With Jimmy and right, Tony Kanaan. Right. So, I mean, say the Jimmy the Jimmy experiment is going to last three seasons. I believe it's a three-season deal. And we don't know for sure what's happening in 2022 because the chances of him... Because Jimmy said this... This is actually an article that came out in the last week, I believe. But Jimmy said that the while the chances are still you know, kind of on the slimmer side... The possibility of him running the 2022 Indy 500 is not totally out the window, so we don't know what's happening. We don't know for sure what his, you know, contract is for the next two, but at least you know we can say with certain that the road and street courses and a fourth car for Ganassi is taken up by Jimmy for the next three seasons. Uh, would you put K Mag in at an oval? Say if Tony Kanaan just decides to go 500 only and he doesn't want to run Gateway or Texas the next two years. I don't think that's very a viable option. I don't think that's a smart idea. But I mean that he could be somebody that Ganassi could put in a car and test so for when or if the Jimmy experiment doesn't work or you know whatever or at the end of the 3 years Jimmy decides to totally retire and get out of IndyCar. And then you have K-Bag, you know? Because he definitely showed a lot of promise uh, at the Rolex. Um, I mean, but so did Van der Zanda, you know. And Van der Zanda and K-Mag both, respectively, were both right on par with Dixon in the DPI. So uh, I think I think Magnuson's definitely a guy who'd be very competitive in IndyCar. But that reminds me. Uh, one thing we're going to talk about. Speaking of uh, ex-Formula 1 drivers uh, in IndyCar, uh, Kevin Lee kind of dropped a bombshell during the Rolex. Not really a bombshell, because it's kind of... A, we, we knew it was a thing. Everybody kind of knows. But the fact that Kevin Lee said it, just said it out loud, kind of confirms it. But uh, the Dale Coyne Racing, the third car... Or the second car, because I for, I keep forgetting that Santucci's gone. But uh, if you haven't heard, the number 18 car, the Sealmaster uh, Honda for Delcoin Racing, is going to be driven by Ed Jones in 2021. Uh, so the second car, which has been tested, because there's been more than one test at Sebring than today, uh, it was being tested by Cody Ware, of all people, in the number 51, uh, which appears to be co-owned by Rick Ware Racing, um, which Rick Ware has kind of yeah, just kind of played like uh, they've kind of teased the idea 
Uh, we've seen, we've literally seen Cody Ware. Cody Ware tested the car. It's got the 51 on it. It's been in Rick Ware's shop. I, I mean, it, it it is confirmed at this point. Thing. No, yeah. I mean, like, that is actually fully confirmed that okay. Dale Coyne is partnered with Rick Ware. But, but the driver's the 51. Uh, no, the drivers are not confirmed. So Cody Ware has been testing the car, so that obviously makes you believe that he will be running at least some of the races. But when the Ed Jones deal was announced, everybody, and I mean everybody, was expecting that announcement to be Romain Grosjean. And it turned out to be Ed Jones, which is honestly, I think Ed Jones going to the 18 full-time, is it's probably the most shocking. I mean, it's not like, it's not that big of a bond. Like it's, it's shocking, but not like, not like break the internet. You know what I mean? Not like, crazy like off the walls like shock but like it was i didn't see it coming at all but uh the uh rumor is i I mean i don't know how this dynamic's gonna work i would guess cody ware would do most like the ovals and some uh road road courses and then grosjean would have however many races but i think the consensus is is that roman grosjean doesn't want to do the ovals. And so I would guess the rest of the races would be Cody Ware. But yeah, the, uh, the kind of the consensus is, the rumor is that uh, Cody Ware and Romain Grosjean are going to split that car. Or there could be one full-time driver. Romain could go full-time. One of them could, I, I mean, obviously Cody Ware isn't going to be full-time in IndyCar. He already announced that he's going to be full-time in the NASCAR Cup Series. So... That, that kind of leaves us with uh, Cody Ware going to be part-time in IndyCar probably, full-time in the Cup Series, running P2 cars somewhere. It's... Uh, I mean, I'm... I, Chris, what would you say... What, what would your... If you had to guess what the schedule would be or what's going to go down with that that coin car, what would you what would you think? Well, it actually gets even more interesting because I don't even believe you brought up the fact that uh, Dale Coyne with Rick Ware has confirmed a second car mm-hmm. for that's right for the Indy 500. That's the only race it's confirmed for so far, but they did say that they plan on doing a selection of other races with that car that are yet to be determined. Now, it this is where it gets weird because to me. A car, you know, a second car that's going to do the Indy 500 with a selection of other races, that sounds like a, a car that Cody Ware could fit in. You know, obviously mm-hmm. he's probably going to want to do the Indy 500. Um, which, fun fact, that would make him do the double, right? Yep. <laughs> the first double oh, since yeah. Kurt Busch in 2014. Um, so that, I mean, to me, that seems like a perfect seat for him to slot into where he does Indy and he does a selection of other races, maybe just some of the other oval races. Maybe he doesn't even bother with the road courses. Um, the other possibility now, I don't, I think Roman Grosjean said he doesn't want to do the ovals. I think he flat out said that. Um, so then you're thinking, okay, so the 51 can't be a full time entry for Grosjean or for, uh, Cody Ware. So, who knows? But there's 52 then wouldn't be for Grosjean. Because then that would that would have the Indianapolis 500. So mm-hmm. I think if I had to guess, I think that the 52 car could be 
the Cody Ware car? And the 51 would have Grosjean and somebody else as as a part-time entry that would run like the ovals. But I don't believe any other name has come up yet. At least I haven't seen any other name come up in terms of like a third driver for DCR uh, Rick, Roy- Rick Ware. Well, let's, let's brainstorm here. I mean, this is Cause, all you. Cause... Cause, <laughs> well, because a driver in my mind, it's, and this is, I'm going to entertain this idea. What if... Uh... Because I believe Ferrucci said that he's looking into doing some IndyCar, even though he's doing a, like the part-time NASCAR Xfinity Series thing this year. I think he did say that he's looking into doing, I mean, at least the Indy 500, at the least, and a couple other starts. I mean, I maybe Ferrucci covers the races that Grosjean doesn't do, including the 500, because. I mean, honestly, if honestly if Ferrucci doesn't do the 500 this year, that'll be a loss. You know, finishing fourth, like his rookie year was like seventh. Last year he finished fourth. I mean, that'd just be that'd be a shame if he wasn't wasn't back this year. Like entirely. He, so another name that I've heard um, part time uh, come up before is Veach. Actually, uh, I've heard I heard his name a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that he'd be going part time with Coin, and obviously we have this big jumble jumble of cars. You know, it's one full time, one kind of part, whatever. I've heard Veach's name, so I think I think actually V. I remembered Veach. That that probably has some credibility to it. It could be Veach, and then my suspicion or guess would have to be total speculation. Would be Ferrucci. That honestly could make sense in my mind, but we'll have to see. Well, actually, then it could play either way because it it could very easily be said then that Grosjean and Cody Ware could team up in the 51 where Ware does the ovals and then um, Grosjean does the road courses. And then the 52 would be Indianapolis. See, the the interesting thing about that to me is that Indianapolis is already confirmed for that car. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just said they want to do a handful of other races with it. Um, so I don't know if they plan on that being just like an oval car or if that's a car that would do like the Indy 500 and then maybe just a couple of road courses afterwards, maybe another oval. It sounds like a total Ferrucci thing if that car, if they had a car just to do the ovals for. Just saying, putting that out there. It could be, yes. But then again, like, the 51 could be where he is then just to do the ovals. Cause that's pretty much what's left open in the 51 car. I don't know. I mean, I think you brought up some good names there. It's really impossible for us to just guess right now. But... Hopefully that's a sound bite that I can go back to and, uh, and, uh, say that I got it. So, but we'll yeah, see. V- Veach and, um, and Ferrucci, those are two, two names that I could actually see. Cause the thing about Ferrucci, did he actually like, ever announce a departure from Dale Coin Racing? No. That's, That's what I found weird. interesting. He just like cuz the th- when we discovered that Ed Jones got the uh got the 18 car, I was like I don't remember Ferrucci like ever like leaving. I knew that he wasn't uh, that he was going to be doing the Xfinity thing and that There would... were never any, like rumors or indication that he was in a contract here. It was yeah. just all the in like the middle of the off season, you know, I started hearing rumors from uh, some sources where it's just like, "Hey, Ferrucci's 
not coming back next year, and you're just like, wait a minute, what? Why? How? What? What? And and then, <laughs> what do you know? Ed Jones driving. Well, actually, first it came, uh, Ferrucci stepping away from IndyCar full time and doing jumping into the NASCAR Xfinity Series with Sam Hunt Racing, and. I do believe he said he wants to do the 500 in some other races. But yeah, he didn't formally announce that he was leaving Dale Coyne Racing. Because you got to remember, too, there were also rumors uh, before Alex Pillow took the Ganassi seat that Ferrucci would be going to Ganassi. And may, like, there, you never know what. <laughs> You never know what happened uh, in negotiations uh, between then and now and how all that all got jumbled and everything that's happened. It's just, and you know, you know, Del Coin. So. Okay, so then if I'm getting a soundbite that I can post on Twitter in a few weeks when this is all settled up or settled uh, or figured out, maybe. I would say Cody Ware and Grosjean in the 51 with Ware taking the ovals and Grosjean taking the road courses. And then the 52 would be Ferrucci. That would be my best guess. You know, if I had to put $20 on the table right now and give you my prediction, that would be it. I don't know if yours is any different. Well, I literally, I gave you, I gave you the Ferrucci. Well, yes, you did. But now I'm like putting two and two together and I'm like, you know, I'd never remember him officially leaving coin and, you know, if he wasn't doing anything with them, I feel like we would have heard at least something, maybe even just a report saying that he's not racing for Coin anymore. That's Sherlock Holmes stuff we're figuring out here. Hmm. So you say he didn't formally announce a departure from Coin? Hmm? <laughs> that must mean something. Get your tin foil hats out, folks. Well, I'm not even a person who usually does that, but it just makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Veach could make sense, but Veach only makes sense on the basis that he's not doing, he doesn't have an IndyCar ride next year. So it's kind of like he's an open guy who has experience. Um, and, you know, certainly well, on the see. ovals, Veach isn't a bad driver. So, you know, he could fit in, but I don't think he fits the puzzles as well as for Honestly, does. what could have happened, because I did hear Veach would be going full time, uh, part-time, but what could have happened is all that could have been talked about before uh, Santucci did his thing and went off. And now, now a sponsored ride opens up. Ed Jones fits the bill. Boom. And then Grosjean. Boom. So, yeah, I'm kind of leaning Ferrucci. I think it makes sense. Well, actually, the only other part-time entry that uh, that I see that Veach may be able to fit into, or somebody like Ferrucci, but even f this wouldn't be for the Indy 500, though. That's the critical thing, is the uh, second Meyer Shank entry that Elio has right now, because he's not full time, but it's, it's like a six race deal, I think. Yeah, but then again, I don't see, unless there's some money being brought to the table, I don't know if I see that being extended to other races. We'll have to see. I mean, that's the only thing that I see right now that's another part-time entry that he could fit into. Who well, knows? What's confusing me, too, is what the heck happens to uh, James Davison? 
Because, like, he's a driver that perfectly fits in. If if Rick Ware is going to buy into a coin entry and run the 500, just like just like in 2020, I mean, James, James Davison's a guy that's running the uh, – that yeah, he's running in the Cup Series for Rick Ware. I've heard he's coming back to the Cup Series there. So it's like he's an Indy – he's done the Indy 500 how many times? Did it last year for him? You know, so why wouldn't he be the guy that they would go to to run some races? I'll be honest with you, I completely forgot <laughs> about James Davison and that mm-hmm. he There's fits a, better now than, we have... than Ferrucci does. But yep, there's three drivers there. Those are three drivers right there. That are just... I think Veach honestly, Veach started out as the, like kind of like the front the front runner for me. And then the more you think about it, the more you kind of split it up. It's like, hmm, wow. There's actually a couple drivers that we didn't really even think of. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll have to, we'll have to wait, see how that whole thing pans out. Because now I'm like, my, my brain's playing puzzles right now, (laughs) playing with puzzles. And, uh, I mean, the only thing that I could see James Davison not getting back in for is you got to remember in Indy Lights, Bellardi Auto Racing shut down, and Bellardi has been one of the keys to Davison running the 500 since, I believe, 2018. I believe Bellardi's been on the car since 18. That would be mm-hmm. the only, because Bellardi did shut down entirely, so that would be the only thing. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add on the note. I mean, it's we we threw you, some you, some possibilities out there. Are you confused? Is your is your brain a pretzel right now? Are you well because the whole Davison thing it. really the whole Davison thing really threw me. I mean, I was like, okay, I think I've got <laughs> it here. I think I got you know Ferrucci makes sense, and then I was like, nope, because now we're bringing up Davison. <laughs> I mean, both of them really make sense in the grand scheme of things, but. I would be surprised if it's Veach. I'll just say that because Veach kind of fits in the least there. But oh well, we're I don't think uh, we're the go-to resource for IndyCar silly season predictions. Um, just do wait. I'll grab this soundbite. I'll be totally right. It's just like, hmm, who's the go-to resource for IndyCar uh, silly season advice? Mm-hmm. All, right. All right, you go ahead and do that. Um. Unless I'm you have anything else to add, I think that's because I don't have an, a, a a gambling problem like you and your antics. What's my gambling problem in the GTA casino? Yes. <laughs> anyway, yes. We'll end it on that bombshell. Uh, because I don't think I have anything else to add for this episode. But if you do, feel free to interrupt me while I do the outro. Um. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rain Race Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed, you can like the YouTube video. If you're watching on YouTube, you can also subscribe. We're past 1,200 subscribers now, which is a huge, huge plus, and I appreciate it to everybody who is a new subscriber because we were under 1,000 last week uh, for that episode. So to be plus 200 in a week is definitely something that I'm very, very happy about. Uh, And as always, you can catch us on podcasting platforms anywhere tomorrow. This episode will be going out there. Um, that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, all that fun stuff. And uh, you can check us out there if that is a better format for listening to these shows. 
Uh, as always, we'll be back next week, same time, 9 p.m. Eastern, for another episode of the Rain Race Podcast, and we hope to catch you then. <laughs>